If you want to join us for Children's Church, um, just an age-appropriate place to learn about God's Word. And so as they're going, let me open us in a word of prayer. Lord, I echo that last song again. Lord, show us Christ. Um, in this chapter of Genesis, it's very dark and very difficult. But Lord, we pray that you would show us Christ even in this, this particular chapter. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would incline our hearts to hear, uh, open our eyes and ears, lead us to trust in you. And Father, I pray for uh, our friend church, Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Palmdale. Uh, Lord, we pray that you're attending the same way with them as you are with us, that as Pastor Barcellus opens the word, Lord, that you would be putting your words in his mouth, that the people would be hearing Christ and delighting in you. And uh, Lord, I want to pray especially for Richard as he's getting ready to go to Kenya uh, to teach homiletics. Uh, Father, I pray that you would go before him and prepare a place, prepare a way for him, that his time with the Kenyan pastors would be a blessing, and that your church across the globe would be strengthened by his ministry. Um, Father, we pray now that uh, you would open our eyes and our hearts, incline our ears to listen and to hear what you have to say to us. Lord, put your word on my lips and uh, help me to say what you have to say this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. So um, we just read a small portion of the chapter, but I'm going to preach the entire thing. Uh, it, it's a difficult chapter. And if you remember last week, we were talking about Joseph and we were really focusing on what happened to Joseph. He has now disappeared, hasn't he? What the last we saw of him was he was taken out of a hole, sold to traders and marched off to Egypt. And that's that's the last we heard is he's gone. And so now imagine you're reading this for the first time. You get to this chapter and it's like, Wait, is that it? We're done with Joseph? Because this entire chapter is about Judah and his family. Um, but we're not done with Joseph. We know that because we've been through this before. So we know we'll get back to Joseph. But this chapter is an interruption in Joseph's story. I mentioned that last week. It's just this just all of a sudden blatant change. And if you read through the story, what you find out is Judah goes and he gets married. And he has three children. And his children grow up and they get married. And that must mean this, this one chapter covers a long period of time. It, it feels like it's just an interruption, like the time that the, um, the Ishmaelites are carrying Joseph off to Egypt is when this happens. But this story actually is going to run concurrent with Joseph's story. This took years for this to happen. Uh, what we're getting is we're getting it all condensed and put here. So when it comes to interpreting chapter 38, we have to ask a couple of questions. Why the interruption? Why does this story land here? If it's not necessarily chronological, in other words, Moses is not going back and forth between Joseph and Judah telling this story. He clumps it all together in one place. Why here? Why does he tell it this way? And the second one, why is there so much detail? It's an entire chapter. Remember when we heard about um, uh, Reuben last week? It was one sentence. We didn't get the full story of why did uh, Reuben go into Bilhah? How did that happen? Was it rape? Was it consensual? What was going on? We didn't get that. We just got, he did that. Boom, and, and pressing on. That could have been done here. This could have happened in a, just a couple of verses. But for some reason, Moses thinks it's important for us to unpack this and understand this. So those are two big exegetical questions we have to ask when we're reading this is, why did Moses write it this way? Why did he spill so much ink? Why did he take up so much room on the page? 
And so that's one of the questions that we're going to have. The other one was, we sang it. Show us Christ. Where is Jesus in this story? I mean, this is one of the blacker parts of, of Genesis. Where is Jesus in here? So hopefully that's what we'll get this morning. We'll, we'll, we'll come back and we'll find those things. So the way the story works is there's... Um, 10 verses at the beginning, 11 verses at the beginning, which are kind of telling a, a genealogical story, who was born to who and where they came from. And then the chapter ends with um, verse 27 through 30 tells another part of the genealogical story. Again, we're back to who was born to who. So if Moses is writing this to explain the genealogies, because genealogies are really important, right? This is G Moses' job is to establish the nation of Israel and to keep the tribes. That's where he does it, but he puts this big section in the middle, too. And so this bigger section in the middle is really what the heart of the story is, and I think we'll see that. So let me kind of summarize what gets us here. It happened at, the time, at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Or Shelah. Uh, Judah was in Shebez when she bore him. So we get this, this quick story of Judah has left his brothers. He's turned aside from his brothers. So if you remember last week, he and his brothers schemed to get rid of Joseph. We don't want him ruling over us. We're going to sell him. It was Judah who came up with the brilliant idea. Look, if we just kill him, we don't get anything out of it. Surely we can make some money off of this. And that was Judah's idea. So now after they got their money, Judah splits. He takes off and he goes away. He meets a friend um, named Hira. So he turns aside. So he departs from his brothers. He turns aside. And then while he's hanging out with Abdullah, he sees a Canaanite woman and he goes into her. Do you get the sense of movement that, that Moses is painting here? Joseph is, has gone from his father to Shechem. He goes from Shechem to find his brothers. He goes from his brothers to Egypt. Now we get Judah going away from his brothers, going to the Adulamite, going into the Canaanite woman. There's a sense of movement that, that Moses is painting here. The problem is the family's beginning to break up. Now, one of the things you have to resist is taking the Mosaic Law and importing it here. Um, this story happened long before Moses was even born. 430 years or so before Moses comes on the scene, this story is taking place. So it's a, it's a long time in the past. So when we see Judah going to a certain Canaanite woman, we don't have the Mosaic Law saying, don't marry with those people. But what we do have is we have... Abraham's tradition. Do you remember when Abraham was an old man and he said, I want a wife for my son Isaac? And his servant comes and says, well, um, what should I do? Abraham says, you go to my family and get him a wife and bring her back. And he says, what if she won't come back? Can I get somebody from the local? He says, by no means. So Abraham is saying, we're not going to intermarry with the Canaanites. Do you remember Abraham's whole story was he refused to be too tied in with the Canaanites. He wanted to buy a plot of land so that he could bury his wife. And they try to make this deal with him. Hey, you know, come and share with us, and this will be great. And, and he's like, no, just tell me how much money you want, and we'll, we'll cut a deal. When he goes and rescues Lot, 
the king of Sodom says, hey, you know, let's trade, let's, let's tie our, our, our fortunes together. And he says, absolutely not. You take what yours, what belongs to you. I want no part in you. So Abraham's family has got this tradition of being isolated, of not mixing with the Canaanites. And so remember, Abraham is Judah's great-grandfather. He's not that far removed. So Judah is ignoring great-grandpa's tradition, his, his path, and he's turned aside, and he's turned aside, and he's turned aside, and now he's married to a Canaanite woman. And he has three children by her. So that's, that's where Judah is heading. You get the picture of how this man is moving away from the covenant family, moving away from the covenant protection of his family. So Judah takes a wife for Ur, his firstborn. He goes out and he finds a woman, and this woman's name is Tamar, and they get married. Now, I wish, in, in some ways, I wish the Bible gave us more information or less information at this point. Because what it gives us is just enough to go, wait, what? It says that Ur was wicked and God killed him. And I'm wondering, how was he wicked? What was he doing? Was he beating his wife? Was he stealing from people? Was he out marauding the, the hillside? Don't know. Okay, well then give us less information. You could just say he died. Nope. We need to understand this. Ur was wicked and God killed him. So Judah tells his next son, Onan, to go in and fulfill his requirements, his, his, his obligation to his sister-in-law. And this was something that was called the Leverite marriage. It comes from the Latin, which didn't exist back then. This is a word we made up. A Leverite marriage. Leverite came from Levar, which was brother-in-law. And the idea was, this woman is now a widow. She has nothing. She has no income, she has no hope for income, and she's childless. This puts Tamar as one of the most vulnerable people in the society. Now, right, wrong, or indifferent, the way things worked back then is women didn't inherit. And, and you know, today we would just be all up in arms because we're so progressive and feminist and how terrible it is. It was just the way it was back then. This is not, don't make any pronouncements about how, how clever we are because in 4,000 years, somebody's gonna look back at us and go, what barbarians? So don't do that to them. This is just the way things worked. Tamar is the most vulnerable now. She has nothing. Her husband has died and she's childless. So the leveret marriage was supposed to provide for her. The next of kin then would come and give her a child so that she would have some hope in the future because that child would receive what was supposed to come to him from the father, even though the father is dead. So what's going on here is Ur is the firstborn from Judah. He stands to inherit the bulk of Judah's property, but he's died. So where does it go? Falls to the secondborn, goes now to Onan. Onan knows he's going to get all the stuff. And so he is required to go in and fulfill his obligation to his sister-in-law so that her son will be counted as Ur's son. He'll inherit what the father should have inherited. But he doesn't want to do that. He's like, I'm not going to share. And so he refuses to give her what she's due. He will not give her the child that she is due because it threatens his income. It, it's purely selfish. And yet, if I can put this delicately, he's having fun. He's doing part of the job, but he's not doing the full job. So he could either just tell her, I want nothing to do with you and be thought of as a, a real cad, but he's going even a step beyond being a real cad. He's now abusing his sister-in-law and refusing to give her a child. 
And so God does the same thing to him. This is wickedness, and God kills him. So that's, that's the, the problem that, that, Ur, or that Onan has, is he refused to, to provide for his sister-in-law. He, he's not taking care of her the way he should. Now, the youngest, Shelah, is too young. And so Judah says, here's, here's what we'll do. Um, Shelah's too young. Go live with your father until he's old enough, and then I'll give him to you in marriage. So do you picture like a 38-year-old woman and a 12-year-old at this point? That's because we're thinking in Western terms. Tamar, when she married Ur, was probably in the neighborhood of 15, 14, 15. They would marry just after puberty often. So she's a young woman. And so she's probably no more than 17, 18, 19 at this point. And she goes and lives with her father. Shelah is maybe four or five years older or younger than her. He just hasn't reached the age where he can marry yet. He's not this little tiny baby. So they're probably fairly close in age. It would work. But Judah sends her away, and, and he figures, I'm not going to give my youngest to her because she keeps killing guys. So I'm going to withhold her. I'm going to withhold my son because I don't want him to go. Stop on this for a second and think about this. First of all, what did Moses tell us about Ur? That he married a woman who kills people. She's a, she's a mass murderer. No, God killed him because he's wicked. What did he tell us about Onan? God killed him because he's wicked. So Joseph is, is unable to see the problem in his own family. You got wicked kids. And instead, he's, he's pinning the, the blame on the marginalized here, on the weak, on the vulnerable, and say it's her fault that they keep dying. And then what's the next thing that he does? Is he says, I am not going to give her my youngest because I'm afraid he might die. Now back up one chapter. What did he just do to his father's youngest? Sold him into slavery. Do you see how blind Judah has become at this point? He can't see the hypocrisy of what he's doing. He can't see the wickedness in what he's doing. He doesn't care about Tamar or what, what's going on with her. So this is the picture that we've gotten now. This is where we're, we're left. This is all the, the genealogy stuff at the beginning. Now here's the heart of the story. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira. So what's about to happen is not adultery. Judah is a widower. His wife has died. He's gone through an appropriate period of mourning, and now it's time to go take care of the flocks. So he and his sheep shearers and his buddy Hira head up to Timnah to go shear sheep. So as, as they're heading out, word gets back. And Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep. And she took off her widow's garments and covered herself in a veil, wrapping herself up. And she sat at the entrance of Enim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown and she was not given him in marriage. So Tamar goes, wait, the kid's old enough and he's not coming my way. And so she, she comes up with this plan. I'm going to wrap myself in a veil, not wear my widow's garments. I, I, for some reason, I picture black robes. I don't know if it was or not. But it was some sort of designating robe that she put on to designate I'm a widow. She takes that off. She puts on a veil and clothes it, uh, covers her face and sits in the city gate at Timnah, because she, or at uh, uh, Enium, because she knows that that's the road to Timnah. 
And so that's where she is. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will give you a young goat for my flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge do you want? And she said, your signet, your cord, and your staff in your hand. So he gave them to her and he went into her and she conceived. And she arose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of her widowhood. So look at this from Tamar's position. She knows her father-in-law is passing through. What can she do to, con- to snare her father-in-law? She can pretend to be a prostitute because that's the kind of man her father-in-law is, is he can't walk past a prostitute without stopping. So she is not there to prostitute herself to other men. She's there for one purpose. I'm watching for Judah to come by because I know he's going to stop. And and what she's hoping here is to become pregnant by him because she still wants to keep her relationship within the family. And he's not giving me the youngest, so I need a child or I'm in desperate straits. If I don't have a child, I have no way of sustaining myself. And I want this this family owes me. And so she tricks her father-in-law into impregnating her. And then she takes off. Now, she took his signet, his staff, and his cord. That, was pro- that might well have been one thing. When you think of signet, what do you think of? I always think of a ring. It probably wasn't a ring. This was probably just a round cylinder that had his, his symbol in it so he could roll it in the wax and stamp it. Um, but the fact that he had a signet and a staff and a cord meant he was a very rich man. He was a powerful person. This was not something that everybody just carried around. Um, not everybody needed a signet. They wouldn't be making big deals. So this is a symbol of his, his wealth, a symbol of his prosperity. And, and that, that round thing was, might have been part of the staff. He might have just par- rolled part of his staff, and the cord would just be the, the ropes hanging off of it. So he leaves that with her, and he says, okay, you hang on to this. When you get the goat, send that back, and we're all good. Transaction's done. So she instead goes back to her father, puts on her widow's clothing, and sits down. Waiting. So when Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take the pledge back from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men said, no cult prostitute's been here. Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we'll be laughed at. See, I sent you... I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. So what happens is um, Hiram takes a goat and heads off to to pay so he can get the stuff back. Notice that before it was, so he thought she was a prostitute, and now it says cult prostitute. The word there is actually a sacred woman. And, and the religions of the period, for, especially for fertility religions, where you'd want your, you'd go to appease some god to make your crop grow or your, your sheep breed or something like that, incorporated prostitution because this was supposed to incite the gods to make you more fertile. So not only has Judah gone aside to a prostitute, he's gone into a false religion. He hired a cult prostitute, as far as he knew. 
This is, this is how far Judah has drifted. This is where Judah is at in his life. And so he says, well, forget it. <laughs> she can just keep that stuff as far as I'm concerned. I, I don't want to be laughed at. You know, I don't want everybody to find out about this. So we'll just call the deal square. And you'll be my witness, Hiram, Hira. Uh, you, you went and looked for her and you couldn't find her. We tried to pay. We tried to get it back. And so he drops it. Now, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Actually, what the word there is, has prostituted. That's the word behind immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by her prostitution. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. That's two words. He just says, bring and burn. So he is angry that his daughter-in-law has played the harlot, has become pregnant, and now what's going on here is if that child is not from his family, it threatens his family because now she's the rightful heir and he could wind up taking stuff. Uh, she could make a claim on his, his property and take that stuff and give it to somebody he doesn't even know whose child it is. So he's really angry about this. This is threatening business. And he says, bring and burn. Now, I said that the Mosaic Law wasn't instituted yet, but... In the Mosaic Law, which will come in about 400 years, if a woman was caught in adultery, she was stoned. If a priest's daughter was caught in adultery, she was burned. But at the time, this was the most heinous way to kill somebody. This was the, the cruelest way to execute justice. And notice Judah makes the call. He doesn't take it to the courts. He doesn't go to the city gate and talk to the elders. This is personal. This is family business, and I'm going to handle it. And so he decides that he's going to burn her. So as she's being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the men whom these things belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify these. Uh, please identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. And Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her Shelah, my son, and he did not know her again. So what she does is she must have had the stuff at hand. I picture the men rushing into her house and grabbing her. And on the way out, she grabs the staff by the door and says, hang on, guys, send this to Judah and ask who this belongs to, because this is the man who made me pregnant. So she is grasping to try to stay alive. And when the, when the symbol gets back to her, she says, recognize. When that word for, for identify, please, is nakar. It simply means recognize. Judah, open your eyes and look at this thing and, and figure out what this is. And so when that gets back to Judah, he sees it, and suddenly everything unwinds. It all falls apart right before his eyes. She's pregnant. I've done it, and I didn't give her my son. And so what he pronounces is, she is more righteous than I am. Between the two of us, I am more wicked of the two. And he didn't know her again. So he didn't take her as his wife at this point. He didn't know her any further, but he did impregnate her. And now she's, she's going to have children. And she has spared her life by, by calling him out on his sin. I think this is a huge turning point for Judah. I think this is, this is his moment with God. Because what we're going to see, Judah's going to disappear for a while until there's a famine and the brothers go to Egypt to get food. And when we do, we're going to see a different Judah at that point. But what we've seen from Judah so far has been pretty horrific, hasn't it? 
just abysmal. He is a terrible, terrible person. He's more interested in himself than the weak and the marginalized. He wants to keep his stuff and not give it to the woman who it's due. And, and apparently he's a rich man. He has huge sheep that he has to take shearers to go get the, the wool from. But when he's confronted with this sin, when, when it can't be denied anymore, when the symbol of it stands right before him, Rahab, or, uh, uh, Tamar says, recognize. And I'm pretty sure she had no idea what had happened in the last chapter. I don't think she read the previous chapter. This is exactly the same thing they said to Jacob when they tore Joseph's um, um, uh, coat with, with many colors or long sleeves or whatever it was, soaked it in blood. They sent it back to their father and they said, Father, recognize. And now that sin is coming back on him too. It's not just, I've been immoral with my, sister, my daughter-in-law. It is, oh my gosh, what did I do to my brother as well? This is all piling back up on top of him at this moment. He's beginning to recognize and be broken by what he's done. That's why he would turn to her and say, she's more righteous than I am. It's a confession of guilt. It's a confession of his sin. Tamar is more righteous than Judah, and Judah is broken. We'll finish the chapter in a minute. I'm going to hang, that on, hang on to that for a bit. What has this got to do with us? Remember, that's, that's where this goes, is how does this tie into Jesus, and what does this have to do with me? Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God is equipped for every good work. That includes Genesis 38. So how is this helpful to us? Um, I think there's a couple of different ways that, that this can help us. Uh, first of all, when we go back to this time period, who are the people of God? The sons of Abraham. Not just the sons of Abraham, the sons of Isaac. Not just the sons of Isaac, the sons of Jacob. This is God's people. Even Judah, this wicked, terrible man. Even Reuben, who slept with his father's concubine. This is God's people. So the question is, how are we connected with them? What are we today? We are God's people. Does God change through any of this? Our God is the, God, the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So when we look at this, we can say, how is God dealing with his people at this time? God is not happy to leave Judah where he is. Now you notice that Ur was wicked and God killed him. Onan was wicked and God killed him. Judah was wicked and God didn't kill him. God has a purpose. He, he's taking this somewhere. And so when he has purpose and he works in his people's life, how does he do it? Well, the way he got Judah to recognize his sin was elaborate. This is years worth of work in Judah's life to get him to the point where he would see his sin. So that Tamar would call him out. And so at that moment, all of the stuff would come crushing in on him. And he would realize what a terrible, desperate situation he's in. This is how God would work in this point in, in covenantal history. This is the time between Abraham and Moses. The law wasn't there yet. The, the Abrahamic promise was, and there were just a few little rules that they knew. But 
if we learn anything from Romans 1, we learn that God has put on the heart of all men, everybody, a sense of right and wrong. So Paul says, when the Gentiles do what is according to the law by accident, they either accuse or defend themselves. There's, there comes a point where you know it's wrong or it's right. And because we're sinful, broken creatures, sometimes that gets eclipsed and the wrong turns more wrong or the right is just accidental and we stumble upon it. But Judah has a sense of what he's doing is wrong. Where does that come from? It doesn't come from the law. The law hasn't been given yet. It comes from this general sense of right and wrong that God has built into history, into people. And that's this point in covenantal history. That's how God is shaping his people, conforming them into the kind of folks he wants them to be, is by these external circumstances, these fairly elaborate external circumstances, are shepherding Judah into being the kind of guy that God would want him to be. Well, what about the next phase of redemptive history? When the, the law comes, Moses comes and he pronounces the law to the people. Now he's still using external circumstances, but he's also given them a codified law and said, this is how it works. And, and what we see from um, Galatians is it says that the, the law was a tutor. It was a child tutor, mentor, to lead us to Christ. It didn't affect the heart. What he says in Romans is the law could not change the heart. It couldn't deliver what it demanded. It demanded righteousness, and it couldn't deliver that. But it was this external framework that was put around them to shepherd them and to lead them into the position where they, they were supposed to be, to make them the kind of people God wanted them to be. That was the function of the law. So God would use external circumstances, and he would use his law. Well, we're not under law. We're under grace. You all should say amen at that point. Amen. Thank you very much. We are not under law. We're under grace. So how does God do this in us? How does God work this in us? The idea that we go from being sinners to more conformed to who God wants us to be, that's called sanctification. The word sanctus means holy in Latin. So when we talk about holiness, we talk about being moved from our sinful position to more conform to the kind of people God wants us to be. How does he do that? Well, he does it through external circumstances. He will be sure your sin will find you out, right? You're not sinning. It's not getting, you're not getting away with it. It will be called out. You will see. So he uses external circumstances. He uses law. Now, it may not be Moses' law, but look through the New Testament. There's plenty of do's and don'ts. It's not like we're, we're set free from Moses now, we'll do whatever we want. So he'll use that external stuff too. But we're in the new covenant. And Hebrews says this is a better covenant. It's built on better promises. It's got a better high priest. It's built with better blood. It's got better everything. So how does he do this in the new covenant? Listen to Romans 5. This is the path that... that, that Paul is going to give us for how does he make us more like who he wants us to be. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Step one, you must be justified by faith. Then he says, through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope for the glory of God. So we're justified by faith and now we stand in hope of glory. But listen how we get there. It's smooth sailing between now and then, right? Life is just ducky. We don't ever hit any potholes. We never make any dumb mistakes. Yeah, you're in the wrong church for that. <laughs> listen to the path that he gives us. Not only, that, um, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Ah, 
knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Why? This is the promise of the new covenant. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love has been poured into the hearts of new covenant members. Now, what does it mean, God's love? That can go in one of two directions. God's love could be the love that God has towards us has been poured into our hearts. And I'm going to argue that's true. The love that God has for us, that's grace, is that he cares for us. That has been poured into our hearts. The other way could be our love for God, God's love, the the love of God, our love of God. And I'm going to argue that's true. The Holy Spirit fills our heart with God's love for us and our love for God. And that's what produces hope. That's what gets us through suffering. That's what produces um, um, endurance. That's what leads us to character is because we have shed in our hearts the love of God. That's how we become more Christ-like. Before the Holy Spirit came, remember Jesus came and he said, it's good that I depart because if I don't, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, will not come. At Pentecost, they are all filled with the Holy Spirit, and Peter announces, this is to be expected. Joel told us this was going to happen. God's people will be filled with this Holy Spirit. That's the new covenant reality. Jeremiah 31 says, I will give them a new heart. I will inscribe my law on their heart. Ezekiel 38 says, I will remove that heart of stone and put a heart of flesh in. God promised repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, circumcise your hearts, circumcise your hearts, circumcise your hearts. I will circumcise their hearts. So this is the promise of the new covenant. So how do we grow in holiness? How do we progress? We do it because God fills our heart with a love for him. If you have a father who loves you, would you ever desire to disappoint him? I'm reading a book right now by um, a man named Benjamin Watson. He's a tight end for the uh, Baltimore Ravens. And he wrote this book about race. But in it, he's telling this story about when he was in high school in the 90s. Um, uh, he was a young, young black man in a predominantly white school. There was another black kid in school with him. And they start hanging out. And his friend said, hey, dude, you got to check out this tape, and gives him a cassette. Um, of what was early hip-hop music by, by Snoop Dogg. It was the hottest, let's see, how did he describe it? He said it was one of the hottest and roughest songs of the day. And his father, by the way, is a pastor. So he takes the cassette home, and he leaves it in his room. He says, you know, I'll get back to it. i got to go to football practice. His younger brother, who terrorized him, said, oh, let's check this out. Puts the tape in the cassette player, hits play, and turns it up. And dad gets a snoot full of Snoop Dogg in the 1990s. And listen to how he explains what happened next. He says, all I know is that when I got home, my father was waiting for me. He called me upstairs, tape in hand, and I knew he'd heard some of the music. With anger on his face, sucking his teeth in disappointment, he warned me to never bring filth like that into this house again. It was a moment I'll remember for the rest of my life. Tears streamed down my cheeks as I faced him. It wasn't that I made him angry. It was that I disappointed him so badly. He loved his father. Is anybody else going to find out? That should be in there. (laughs) He put us in community. But the first reaction should be, I have disappointed my father. I have let my father down. I'm not living up to the ideals that he has. Now, 
1990s, you know, that was a long time ago, right? What about the 17th century? Same thought, similar thought. Listen to this. This is from Richard Baxter. Uh, he was a, a Puritan pastor in the, in the uh, 17th century. He wrote something called a Christian dictionary or directory. Um, it was a bunch of how to live kind of things, I think. Uh, but this is how he explains it. He says, holiness, remember, sanctification is holiness, right? It's becoming more holy. Holiness consists not in a mere forbearance of sensual life, but principally in living unto God. So to grow in holiness is not first and foremost to put the sensual stuff away. It is instead to live unto God, which will require putting that away. That's the other part of it. But primary, the primary force is, is living unto God. The principle of the heart of holiness is within and consists in loving of God, his word, his ways, his servants, his honor, and his interest in the world. It consists in the soul's delight in God and the ways of God. It is inclined towards him and seeks him to please him. It hates to offend him. The expression of it in our lives consists in a gentle or a, con a constant, diligent exercise of the internal life according to the direction of the word of God. So do you see where Baxter is going? He said, first and foremost, it is a relationship to God and saying, I want to know you. Therefore, I put these other things away. I don't want to be involved in those things. So let's take this back and, and bring Judah back into this. And, and what's going on? Judah is sanctified by God because he is of the holy seed. He is of the holy family, the, the, the covenant family at this point. God has a plan for what Judah will accomplish on into the future. And so God, working in the covenant uh, relationship that he has at that time, brings these events about to take Judah to the point where his heart is broken for his sin. And he would look at Tamar and say, she's more righteous than I am. This is something God has been does consistently with his people, but he does it in the parameters of different covenants. And so Moses, it was intended, the point was the law was supposed to bring conviction of guilt to people, not a sense of righteousness. That's why Jesus is so mad at the Pharisees when they got, hey, we got it figured out. We're so holy, we can judge you because they have turned the law, instead of something that was supposed to conduct them to the need of a savior, into their own external righteousness and never got to the heart. But the new covenant is so much better because God says, I'm heading straight into your heart. I'm going to affect the central portion of you, your desires, your loves, your passions. I am gonna to touch those so that you will be inclined to follow me, so that you will walk with me, so we're in this time between Jesus' first and second coming, and we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. We're waiting for the resurrection when the flesh is made new, and now we're set freed from sin. But in the meantime, in this covenant dispensation, in this way that God works, what he's doing in our hearts is he's, he's drawing us to himself in a much more intimate and much closer fashion than he had with Judah. So... Judah's role in all of this, how does he fit into this? Why didn't God just zap him? Because of what comes next. The last section. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread to his hand, saying, this one came out first. 
But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you've made for yourself. Therefore, his name is Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and she called his name Zerah. Is that a bizarre story or what? I mean, this is weird. If a child can stick his hand out, he is not in a position to be born, right? You go head first. So what's going on is this, these two are wrestling within her womb while she's in labor. And it's not inconceivable. It's not like against the laws of nature that a hand would pop out. But the hand pops out, and a fast-thinking midwife ties a scarlet thread on her. Here's, here's the firstborn. But they're still wrestling, and so the child spins around, and, and they're jostling for position, and the other one comes out first. Perez. Perez is Hebrew for breach. What a breach you've made. You've pulled your brother out of the way, and you snuck in, you little trickster, you. And so then the other one comes out, and oh, there's the scarlet thread. Okay. He's Zerah. Perez is the one who sneaks ahead of his brother, jumps ahead of Does this sound like the family or what? I mean, really, Ishmael is the firstborn. God says, nope, not Ishmael, Isaac. Isaac has twins, Esau and Jacob. God says, nope, not Esau, Jacob. Now, Perez, or, uh, now Tamar and Judah have children, and again, we're having this, this rotation. The youngest comes first. And isn't that just what happened with Joseph? Reuben squandered his position as firstborn. Judah is apparently going to be the next one, but he's not looking so good. So God sends this message to Joseph, you will rule over your brothers. The youngest is going to rule over his brothers. Well, second youngest, but we'll get there. The youngest is going to rule over his brothers. God is constantly picking the wrong person. He is constantly going against the flow. And thank heavens for that, because I wouldn't be saved if he didn't pick the wrong person. He would have never picked me. So that's what's going on with Joseph, or with, with uh, uh, Judah, where this leads to Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1, talk, talking about um, Jesus' genealogy. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Herzon, and Herzon the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and, we'll get there, hang on, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David the king, the father of Jesus Christ. So here's, here's how this all ties back to us again. Did Judah sin? Judah sinned horribly, he, but he was brought to repentance. Was Tamar innocent? I, I, I've seen places where Tamar gets the brunt of the, the sermon because she's so horrible for doing this. Tamar is more righteous than Judah. Does it say Tamar is innocent? Nobody's innocent in this picture. Nobody gets away with it in this story. But what God does is God says, I am going to bring a savior, the promised seed of Abraham, who will save the world. He will be a blessing to the nations. He will come. And I will bring him, as I have foretold, even when Judah does this, even when Tamar does this. 
when Perez comes out first because he wrestled with his, no matter how messed up it is in the middle. I've said it before, God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. And that's exactly what he's doing here. Even though this is all happening, eventually it's going to bring Jesus. And when Jesus comes, Jesus will take the burden of all of this sin. And he will die. And when he rises again and ascends into heaven, he will send the comforter, the Holy Spirit, who will come and renew our hearts and begin to deal with all of this stuff in us in a different way. So that's the, the, how it ties into us. How, where does Jesus come through in this? this is, why does this interrupt Joseph's story so badly? I think what Moses is trying to accomplish here is draw a huge contrast between Joseph and Judah. As I mentioned at the beginning, Joseph is moving away from the family. Judah is moving away from the family. But what we're going to see Joseph do is be righteous. Now, it's, I'm not saying Joseph never sinned. There's plenty of biblical evidence that everybody sins. But in his story, as Moses tells us, there is no sin. We never get Joseph doing anything wrong. And it's not because Joseph is perfect in this you know, immaculate conception and born without original sin or something. I'm sure he messed up. But the story is designed to contrast us with Joseph, or with uh, uh, Joseph with Judah. Judah has just committed sexual immorality. What we're going to see next week is Joseph refuses to. There's that contrast between the two. So where, where his brothers are failing, Joseph is going to succeed. Where we have failed, Jesus is going to succeed. This is that picture, that parallel between the two. It's not accidental. So how you doing, Saint? How are we, how we doing with sin when it comes up? The temptation to lie or, or aggrandize or just steal a little bit or whatever it is. Lust, whatever that thing is that comes up in your heart, how you doing? And what tools do you have to fight that? What has God given you to war against that? I think from Judah, you've just been shown circumstances are going to war against that in your life because God is the God of circumstances. That's why God shows up at the very beginning of this story. He kills people. You should fear the Lord. He kills people. He'll use circumstances in your life to guide you to where you need to be. He's given you law. He's given you his word. He's told you what you must do, O oh man. And then finally, he's given you his Holy Spirit. And he's given you his spirit as a seal, as a guarantee, as a promise. The Holy Spirit is the sign and seal of the new covenant. New covenant members have the Holy Spirit because God has given you a guarantee. And he's shedding abroad in your heart the love of God. So these are the tools you have in the war against sin. These are how you fight against those things. Is God is on your side in this battle. And if you're his saint, he's got his plan for you sometime in the future. Do you think Judah knew that Jesus was going to be born from his line? At this point, he didn't have a clue. He may get a hint a little bit later on, but at this point, no idea. He just knows Papa Abraham said that his seed was going to bless the nation, so we're waiting for that. Aren't we a blessing? Um, God has a plan for you sometime in the future, even if you can't see it right now. So let the trials lead to endurance, and endurance lead to hope, because God has shed his love abroad in your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's where I think 38 fits into not only Joseph's story, but our story as well.
Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would accomplish your purpose in us, that you would conform us to the image of your son, your son who you said, in whom I am well pleased. So Lord, I pray that uh, we would become more and more like Jesus, that we would become well-pleasing to you. Lord, would you fit us for the battle against our sin? Would you fit us for, for the times when temptation comes? Lord, I pray that you would spare us from gross sin, the kind of sin that we see in Judah. Lord, have mercy on us. And we pray that you would glorify us, glorify yourself in us so that Jesus' name would be thought much of. Lord, we ask all of these things in his name. Amen.